this seems to be the one that really gets their attention and holds it and and draws out their passion you know so and it would different students would have different reasons for for doing it there are several cases of students who I felt like it did change their trajectory where they decided they wanted to go into to law you know mm-hmm. because of they saw the value of being able to represent people who are voiceless. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. Last week, I spoke to Tiffany Shackelford about the Association of Alternative News Media's annual conference, which takes place July 7th through 10th in Austin, Texas. This week's podcast features an interview with one of the conference's keynote speakers, Hank Klibanoff, a veteran journalist and James M. Cox Jr. Professor of Journalism at Emory. We have a great conversation about the Civil Rights Cold Case Project, which investigates unsolved racial murders that took place in the South during the modern civil rights era. I found this a fascinating and enlightening conversation, and I, th- I think you will too. Enjoy. So what is it you're going to be talking about at the conference? Well, I'll probably focus most of my talk on a project that I've been involved with since 2011 at Emory University, uh, but focused statewide on Georgia, and that is the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases Project, which is an examination of Georgia history, and by extension, certainly Southern history, through the prism of uh, racially motivated, unsolved, and unpunished murders that took place in the Jim Crow era in the South, the modern civil rights era, so from World War II till the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. Now, is it, I mean, obviously, these types of incidents, these types of crimes extend back, you know, over a century. Is it your focus on post-World War II? Is it because you have more... You know, there are more records that make it easier for you to sort of uh, investigate those cases? Certainly, that is a large part of it, that there are records that are held by government agencies, by the NAACP, by, you know, lawyers who are involved in cases, sometimes by families that are more accessible to us than you know, crimes and murders of racially motivated nature that would have occurred, you know, in the late 1800s or the early 1900s. It's also, this sort of began going back into the early into the the 1990s when a particular reporter in Mississippi began examining a bunch of cases from what we know of as the civil rights movement and was successful in you know, unearthing the names of people who were still alive and who could be either prosecuted for the first time or successfully re-prosecuted in modern times. And so it began with the goal, I'm sure, these, these various cold case projects, of finding living perpetrators and finally bringing them to justice. What And if we do that in my class at Emory, if the students are able to locate a a living perpetrator, and we would certainly make sure that that's known, and we would publish that and hope that law enforcement would take appropriate action. 
But the longer range view, and what I'm trying to do is teach the context of what happened and teach the historical context of what happened. And we don't need a living perpetrator Mm -hmm. to do that. So while the whole project uh, of the whole, you know, these kinds of projects um, in the began because people thought that they could bring these old Klansmen to justice, um, I think it needs to be cast in such a way that it can be perpetuated as a teaching mechanism, you know, for years to come. Okay. So can you talk about some of the cases that um, you've successfully been able to investigate through your class? Sure. Sure. And um, so we began the first year, uh, the first semester, we began by examining the case of a man named Lemuel Penn. Lemuel Penn was a Washington D.C. high-level school administrator in the Washington, D.C. public school system. And he and two other African-American men had gone down for Army Reserve training to Fort Benning, Georgia, and had been there for a couple of weeks of reserve training. When they were done, they were driving back to Washington, D.C. They certainly weren't planning to stop at a hotel. They couldn't stop along the way. You just couldn't do that in 1964. And they were got outside Athens, Georgia, and stopped to change drivers. And Lemuel Penn got behind the wheel and had no idea that out riding around that night were three Klansmen just looking for trouble. They, uh, one of them had a shotgun. They'd already fired at one African-American and hit his car but missed him. And just their terrible misfortune that these Klansmen came upon them and fired right into the car and to the driver's side of the car and hit Lemuel Penn and killed him. Car wheeled off the road and uh, into a ditch. The other two men survived. So we teach, in that case, law enforcement did arrest some people and they were, I think by all evidence, they, they caught the right guys, but they were acquitted at trial. The feds got involved and they brought some charges and they ultimately won some convictions of, you know, less than murder. And it became important as a teaching tool for a number of reasons. You know, uh, whites back then were deeply offended that blacks were in the military. And so we learned, you know, some little things that have larger meaning so that the two surviving reservists who uh, were in the car, they came and testified in court to identify the men who who killed Lemuel Penn. And they both were coached by the attorney to wear their military uniforms. And it really backfired. Mm -hmm. White juries were offended by that. People were still not, in 1964, over Harry Truman's desegregation of the military. So there are a number of very specific lessons that people can learn about the nature of Jim Crow through that one. Another interesting one, which took place six years before them, was in 1958 down in Dawson, Georgia, in Terrell County, which during the civil rights days, a little bit later than this period, 1958, became known as Terrible Terrell because they just had a very brutal uh, law enforcement apparatus there, the police in Dawson and the sheriff of Terrell County. And in this city of uh, Dawson uh, lived, uh, it's actually a small town, lived a man named James Brazier. He was a hardworking man in his early 30s. He had four children and worked three different jobs. 
and made pretty good money. Uh, his wife worked two jobs, and she together they were doing well above average for African Americans. And one thing that James Brazier really liked was cars, and he liked new cars. And he happened to work for the Chevrolet dealership doing whatever they would allow an African-American to do back then, probably wash the cars, gas them up, things like that. And so in 1958, he bought himself a 1958 Chevrolet Impala. And it was a spiffy car, baby blue with a white top. And he had earlier bought a 57 57 Chevrolet, but he had given that to his father. And the police were offended by this, and they stopped James Brazier and his father time and time again. In November of 57, they stopped James Brazier and, and took him in and beat him up. And he said, why are you always doing this to me? Why, why are you bothering me? What am I doing? You know I'm not breaking any laws. And one of the police officers said, you've got a lot of nerve driving a car like that when we can't hardly live. Hmm. And... April of 1958, he finally, he was dry. He had been in church all day on a Sunday afternoon. He'd been in two churches that day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, been with his whole family, been with his father. And as he's leaving church and he's dropping kids and nieces and nephews and other people off at different places in town at their homes, he sees uh, police have stopped somebody up, up the road from where he's driving. And as he gets closer, he realizes they've stopped his father. So he gets out of his car and he starts to walk there and they see they're, they're beating up his father and trying to force him into the car, into the police car, the patrol car. And James Brazier first, you know, he's crossed one line by driving up in this nice car. And then he crosses another line when he speaks in a very nice and helpful tone of voice. But in the imperative, he says, don't hit my daddy. I'll help you get him in the car. And police went off on that, and they said, we're taking your daddy in, and we'll come see you later. And sure enough, after they took his daddy to the jail, they went and picked him up, beat him up in his front lawn in front of his wife and his kids, took him to jail. They beat him up enough that they were nervous, so they called a doctor to come look at him. And the doctor looked at him. He saw blood in his nose and blood in his ear, and he was slurring his speech. And rather than making the obvious conclusion that he had some sort of a skull fracture, uh, and needed some attention and probably should be taken to the hospital and x-ray, he said the doctor just sent him back to his jail cell. He was groaning. He was still in his Sunday clothes, bloodied. A couple hours later, as three inmates at the jail watched, two police officers showed up, and maybe four, and said, Brazier, you're going with us. Let's go. And he begged them not to take him out of that jail. And he kept sort of saying, making excuses to delay it. He said, let me get my shoes. And one of the Police officers said, you won't need no shoes. And they took him out and just beat him to a bloody pulp and brought him back. He was stripped of his clothes, his Sunday clothes. He was groaning, and they threw him onto his onto the you know, mattress on the floor. And uh, the next morning, he was going to have to face trial <laughs> for interfering <laughs> with a police officer. And the judge says, this man's of no use to us. Get him out of here. About that time, James Brazier's wife showed up, Hattie Brazier. And she grabbed him up and threw him in the car and took him to the hospital where a doctor looked at him. And I'm going to use the language that was in the family, in the NAACP report. According to Mrs. Brazier, the doctor looked in the car and said, ain't nothing that ailing that nigger. 
ain't nothing ailing him but drunk. <laughs> and she ended up going to Columbus, 60 miles away with her husband, and they operated on him, but he died there. <laughs> and so that's one of the cases that we're looking at, not just the police brutality piece of it, but the medical neglect piece of it. And the students have done a terrific job there. They found, one student found some 2,000 pages of records that were at the National Archives because while there was no law enforcement prosecution of the police, mm-hmm. federal or local, Mrs. Brazier was determined that these police officers should stand trial, and she brought a civil suit in federal court. And, you know, through this, the students will learn the difference between federal jurisdiction and state jurisdiction. She happened to get the judge, a federal judge, who turns out to be one of the two most white supremacist federal judges that President Kennedy ever named. J. Robert Elliott, in his first act, he had denied Martin Luther King the right to march in Albany, Georgia, which sparked its own set of, you know, turmoil. And uh, in the end, the jury very quickly, all-white jury, very federal court, though, found the police officers not responsible for the death of James Brazier. <laughs> so she never got justice on that, never got satisfaction. But the students have produced... I think on the website we have 17 or so different stories about it, different angles, profiles of the judge, profiles of the defense attorneys, the black attorneys who represented Mrs. Brazier, profiles of the law enfor- of the sheriff and of the police officers who were accused of killing James Brazier and so on and so forth. So those, those are two of the cases. You know, one, one pattern that we see across several cases, I mentioned the Brazier case, and it also a case involving a man named Clarence Pickett in Columbus, Georgia, in 1957, is the issue of medical neglect, where doctors had an opportunity to save or extend the lives of African Americans who had been beaten brutally by, in both cases, uh, Brazier and Pickett by police, and did not do anything, didn't do what they could have done to save their lives. So the students who are in this class, are these journalism students, are they history students, or what is it there? It's a real mix. It's a real mix. Early on, when we first started teaching it, we had a journalism program with journalism students, history students. It's cross-listed in journalism, history, African-American studies, and American studies. So it's cross-listed in four different departments and programs. Our dean unfortunately killed our journalism program, but we continue to draw full classes from the other departments. But, you know, we you don't have to be one of those majors to take the course, and we do have some students who come from other majors who take the course. So now these are, these are undergraduates? Most yeah, of, yeah, all so, undergraduates. So they're, you know, young 20s, maybe they're, they're upper teens, they're taking this class, um, right. What is their? What is their? You know, how does this change their perspective about race in America? Do you think? Well, you know, it would be hard for me to say how it changes their perspective because I don't, you know, I don't do an assessment of what their thinking is when they walk in the door, and then do another assessment of what they're thinking about race when they leave. I can tell you that. You know, the students get totally involved in this case. They get in these cases, they get totally immersed in them. And, uh, you know, I I guess one way to put it, but I don't mean this to sound immodest. Uh, You know, I I teach with this other professor. He's a professor of African-American studies, Brett Gadsden. And I think we both see that 
this is the course that the students will put their work for other classes aside for. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the students are triaging all the time. How much time am I going to spend on this psychology? How much time am I going to spend on this, you know, you know, medieval literature? What am I, you know, all this sort of thing. I mean, and this seems to be the one that really gets their attention and holds it and, and draws out their passion, you know? So, and it would, different students would have different reasons for, for doing it. There are several cases of students who I felt like it did change their trajectory where they decided they wanted to go into to law, you know, mm-hmm. because of they saw the value of being able to represent people who were voiceless. Or, you know, last fall we had a case where the students, three students, found the gravesite of a man that had been law a man a black man who had been killed in 1948 for voting and the family had fled Georgia right after he was killed and right after they'd buried him and when they started feeling feeling safe it was it was safe to come back to Georgia and they would go to the cemetery they couldn't find his gravesite so for 67 years the family had been able to find Isaiah Nixon's gravesite and I found, uh, with the help of a student who had taken the course, who was still helping me, one of Isaiah Nixon's daughters. She was living in Jacksonville. She said, I'll help you any way I can. We flew her up to Atlanta, and she met with the class. The students were just mesmerized. And hearing her description of what she saw when she was six years old and witnessed her father being shot dead by two men in their front yard for voting. And the students, three of them came up to me and said, we want to go down there to where this happened. And I said, you know, it's a great idea, but it's sort of late in the semester. We really got, you got, you got to get this paper done. The, the family no longer lives there. The farm is overgrown with pine trees, the cemetery. They've never found it. They said, we want to go. We are going. And I said, okay, can I, can I drive? <laughs> I'll buy the gas. And we went down there. And sure enough, we, go, we walk into the cemetery. A man is uh, showing us around. A man who, whose father we had read about, because he too is an African-American man who voted on the same day that Isaiah Nixon did. We know this from the FBI records that we use. And we are walking through the cemetery, and we haven't been there for three minutes, I bet, when the students have sort of fanned out. And all of a sudden, you hear one of my students say, I found it. Hmm. And sure enough, she'd found Isaiah Nixon's gravesite. It had nothing on the headstone, on the front or the back of the headstone. And it never had. It wasn't just that it was weather-worn. It never had. But what no one had ever noticed, that there was a slab of concrete that came off it. And it was always covered. After years, it was covered in grass and dirt and leaves. And it was off to the perimeter under a gnarly old tree, so it had limbs over it. But as she stood there looking at it, the wind had blown the leaves in such a way that she could see a very crudely drawn I and then an S and maybe an A. And then under that S, E, P, and she knew that Isaiah Nixon had died September 10th, 1948. And she starts sweeping leaves and dirt and everything away. And sure enough, she sees that it says Isaiah Nixon. And pretty soon everybody's on their hands and knees and, and cleaning this gravesite. And we, it was phenomenal. And we called his daughter down in Florida and told her 
And she just couldn't believe it. And then she finally got to come up and see it in January, and we returned with the students and a few other students. It was pretty compelling. Now, that student who found it, she was, she was double, and still is, double majoring in biology and American studies. And her plan has been to be a large animal veterinarian. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that, and I, you know, if she is, if she goes that route, she'll be terrific at it. She's wonderful. But she also, I do know from things she's writing and applications she's filing for internships and everything, that it's changed her trajectory completely. And that she now wants to do something that's not so scientific, but that that is more like the experiences she had chasing down that story. Yeah, it's a it's amazing and it's very heartening to hear some you know some a story like that where you know the, you uh, you have a class that actually has such a huge effect on somebody's life. They're able to connect with the people and the families that they're looking that they're trying to find answers for. They're trying to find justice for. It's, right. Yeah. And I want you know and keep them, the families aren't always immediately in love with this idea. And I say this not just for my own project, but I've worked with journalists in the South, you know, working on some other cases in Alabama and in Mississippi and in Louisiana. And the families, they get a knock on the door or a call, you know, from somebody say, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm looking into the, you know, murder of your granddaddy 48 years ago, 52 years ago, whatever it is. And they're not always in love with this idea because they don't know what it means. They don't know where it's going. Or in some cases, they didn't know anything about it. And it takes some time to win these people over. We were very lucky with Isaiah Nixon's daughter. She was fantastic. She just said immediately, I'll help you any way I can. So what are some of the tools that uh, your students are using to, to dig into this information? As the journalists who I'm going to be speaking with know all too well, if we, on the first day of class, <laughs> um, sent in a Freedom of Information request <laughs> to the Justice Department or FBI or even a state you know, Bureau of Investigation, they'd all, these students all be married and have kids who probably were, are, are going to be at Emory, you know, before we get the, the records from the government. So I have, in many cases, primed the pump by getting all of those records in hand, okay, mm-hmm. as, or as many as I can, but it's never all of them, and it doesn't even come close to what, what all is out there. And, you know, some of the training for the students is everything from how to use Ancestry.com, how to use Find a Grave, literally, findagrave.com, you know, which is a, a great tool. In one of our cases, I'm getting a little bit off here, but in one of our cases, where a police officer had beaten a, a man, the students presumed that the police officer was, in their words, a cracker, you know, just a southern redneck, old bully boy guy, part of the Jim Crow ethos, you know, and they were operating under that principle. And I didn't know where they got this, and they weren't showing me any evidence that they had nailed that down, you know. And so one of the students through Find a Grave found the police officer's grave site and noticed that it said he was born in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so it changed the whole you know narrative that we were working with. But we also use, you know, we go to archives, the National Archives, or we go to the private archives of journalists or of, of lawyers. The Auburn Avenue Research Library here in Atlanta, which is a 
part of the Fulton, Atlanta, Fulton County Library. But it holds the records of a lot of civil rights figures, okay? And they had the papers of Donald Hollowell, who was a a major force in law. He was an African-American lawyer, and he represented a lot of the families of these victims. And his papers have been just fantastic for us. The NAACP records, they would investigate these things. They are helpful. The Southern Regional Council records, which are over at the Atlanta University Center's archives, there's quite a long list of places we can go, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission papers. Mm-hmm. So it becomes almost, in some ways, for students, a research methods course. Right. You know? So how important is it to, to, to get students involved in, in investigating these types of stories? Well, you know, I mean, I guess I start from the position that somebody needs to be investigating these cases. <laughs> and because we can learn from them. You know, people wonder, it's it's not, you know, when we look at the rash of police shootings and police brutalities that have emerged over the last three or four years, and it's not always police, but, you know, wildings by white people, you know, down in Jackson, Mississippi, or you can go to, you know, the Jasper, Texas, or, or wherever it is. It's important, I think, for people to realize this has been going on a long time. And it should never be the attitude of my generation, oh, been there, done that. You know, these cases, ah, oh, they've been going on for a long time. What's what's interesting about it? It should be shock that it's been going on all this time and that nothing's been done about it or, or little has been done about about it or what we have done about it is falls far short of what should have been done about it. So I think that it deepens their knowledge of the history of this behavior. You know, we explore violence and uh, racial violence in the South. We, you know, the students dig into, they find analysis and examinations that we, the other professor and I didn't know existed. You know, I can turn them to Gunnar Myrdal and, and An American Dilemma. He's got terrific chapters on policing in the South. And, you know, he points out that anyone could be a police officer. He says, He's actually quoting someone else and saying, you know, as long as you're not overweight and you're not already in jail, you can become a police officer in the South, okay? And how there was no training. And so you get certain, you know, parameters and definitions of what it was to be a police officer then. And then you look and say, okay, what have we got today? And in some cases, we haven't really advanced that far. You know, that's that's helpful for the students to see. Yeah, I would imagine looking back, I mean, in many ways, it's kind of easy to look back and say, oh, that was another time. And, and But but realizing as you more that you go into it and you begin to see the system and the systematic problems there that are can continue to this day that, you know, hopefully just by exposing the students to this, that it maybe gives them a, a more, I know, a more practical perspective on, on the way things work. Well, I think that's right. And they learn, I think, that it's never too late to to correct the problem and to debunk the myths. So I mentioned that we look at a lot of these, uh, we look at medical neglect in a number of these cases, okay? Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I find exciting is how many students, after they take the course, want to continue And so they'll do an independent study with me, you know, for one, two, three credits, you know, later and and do a lot of work. And one student 
uh, looked at medical neglect across multiple cases, but she really went into the history of this, of medical, racially motivated medical neglect. And there have been a couple of books written on it, Black and Blue by John Hoberman. There's some others. And, you know, her, her whole examination revealed to me for the first time how deeply affected the medical literature was hmm. back you know, in, in back in the 20s, the 30s, how many mythologies about black people were manifest in, you know, medical journals and in, in the research. I, I was, I don't know, maybe I was naive, but I was a little shocked by it. Um, and then she brought to me all the evidence there about how, I mean, it was just so few years ago. It, was 2000, it wasn't until 2008 and I don't want to just say it wasn't until, it was in 2008 that the American Medical Association issued a broad and very specific apology to African Americans for their misrepresentation of African American medical and health issues over all the years. And I believe they even went back and looked at their own, you know, the research that they had published in the Journal of American Medicine and it didn't get a lot of attention back then. And, and I, I don't know why. I mean, I mean, it may have been page one of the New York Times, but it just didn't go, you know, didn't get explored over and over and over again. Uh, it's just sort of sitting out there. I think part of the reason is because the head of the AMA under whom this happened very unfortunately died within a, some, you know, less than a year after this report came out and really wasn't available to keep pushing into our you know, consciousness, I guess. But, you know, so we had, you know, when we had a case of Clarence Pickett, I mentioned to you a man who was beaten up by police, but he also was faced with a doctor who looked at him and he's clearly in a lot of pain mm -hmm. and he's clearly suffering from having been beaten. And the doctor turned to the police officer, no, a police officer is in the room while he's examining him and says, I think he's putting on. <laughs> okay. And then he let him go home. But before he went home, he said, here, take this. And he gives him 75 milligrams of Demerol. <laughs> okay. And so he knew, right? And the next day, the, the man, Clarence Pickett, is in so much pain. His sister calls the ambulance and he's dead by the time he gets to the hospital, you know. And so we get the autopsy. And so the students are looking at the medical examiner's autopsy side by side with the previous day's medical report by the doctor who callously said, I think he's putting on. And we go and met with a, a pathologist at Emory University Hospital, and they're able to, he's able to compare and says, well, based on this autopsy report, here's what the medical doctor should have seen, what he should have known, what he should have tested, this, that, and the other. And we wonder, well, why wouldn't he? Was it just racist? racism, white supremacy, callousness? Is it bad training in the medical profession? Is it being trained under medical mythologies? Mm -hmm. And we've had students who went back and looked, and the guy went to Tulane Medical School and looked. We couldn't look exactly at what he studied, you know, what textbooks he was reading at Tulane Medical, but we could look at the various journal articles that were around at the time and what what one would have read about the condition that he was presented that day. And, you know, it would say things like the prevailing wisdom on African-Americans was that their nerves were encased in, in a thicker substance than, than, those, than the nerves of white people, okay? 
that they really have thicker skin or whatever substance around their nerves than white people. And so they don't feel pain as much. Okay. I mean, it's all very shocking. And so the students find this literature and they find these things. And and when they see that the AMA actually apologized, I think they come to the conclusion, you know, once you know something's wrong, you should say something and you should do something and not let these mythologies persist forever and, and apologize for, the, you know, the persistence of them and through the years. So I, I said at the beginning, at the, at the outset of this, that you were a co-author of The Race Beat. Uh, this is this is a subject you've you've researched and written about for so long. What what was it that got you into the uh, covering this area? Well, the race beat is of a different nature, only because it's about how the press covered civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that was the luckiest day of my life when Gene Roberts asked me to join him in writing the book. He, Gene Roberts, he's a generation older than me, and he was my editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, terrific editor, probably the best editor in America at the time. You know, it's well well known. It's sort of the cliche now where people say, why? You know, when Gene was editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, we won 17 Pulitzers in his 18 years. And that's true, you know. And um, he had long believed, having covered the civil rights movement in North Carolina for papers there, then in Virginia, and then later for the Detroit Free Press, and then later for the New York Times based in Atlanta, that out of all the civil rights books that have been written, the one that no one had ever really told fully was how the press did it and how the press made America aware of the problem. And so he got a contract to do that as soon as he left the Philadelphia Inquirer and went to teaching at University of Maryland and worked on it for two or three years when he had an opportunity to go back in the newspapers to the New York Times as managing editor, the incoming editor, Joe Lelyveld said, Gene, I just need you to come here for three years and help me develop the talent for who can be the next generation of leadership at the New York Times. And so Gene did. And that's when he turned to me and said, would you take on the book? You know, and it was, you know, an incredible honor and privilege. So I did. And I'm sure he thought it would be done in the three years he was at the New York Times, but I I took 12. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you wanted to get it right. You know, I wanted to get it right. That's right. I didn't want anybody to be able to find a split infinitive, you know. So. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm unfortunately I'm not going to be able to to make it to the conference in, in Austin. I, I think your your oh, presentations your presentation is going to be really great. Um, sure. Now, where where can people find out more about uh, the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Case Project? Well, we do have a website, and it has a lot of the work that our students have done. It has a lot of the resources, a lot of the documentation, some photographs. It's called coldcases.emory.edu. So it's coldcases, plural, dot emory, E-M-O-R-Y, dot E-D-U. And, you know, I we don't just sort of throw the student papers up on the website. We do, after they've turned them in and we've given them their grade and all, I'll spend the next month just sort of editing them. In some cases, when two or three students write on the same topic, I'll merge them into one piece and present that. I'm behind on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the James Brazier case, you might see 17 stories. Clarence Pickett, I think you'll see two or three. So, and I try to raise money to hire editors to help me, you know, so, and there is a donation button on there. So, okay. Uh, but coldcases.emory.edu. Okay. Well, and, um, 
it's gumshoe reporting, it's investigative reporting, but with the with the purpose of not just finding the bad guys and putting them in jail, but telling the, the history and, and giving the historical context for these murders. Yeah, it, it sounds like a, like a great project and something that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. Thank you for, for, for taking this time, Hank, and talking about it, and good luck uh, at your presentation in, in Austin. Thanks for your interest. It's good talking to you. I okay. appreciate it. Next time on It's All Journalism. Like many of us have been, you know, you, you, you want to do journalism, so, you know, you sustain your income, you know, maybe you work in a restaurant, you have a retail job, but you want to do something, you know, uh, you want to do more serious reporting on the side. You know, we're here at this juncture as an incubator to kind of help sustain stuff like that. In our next episode, we talk to Chris Ferrone about media funding from the Boston Institute of Nonprofit Journalism. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. This week's podcast was produced by me, Michael O'Connell, Nicola Grisco, and Amber Healy. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.